Welcome back to Composer Quest. I'm your host in Minneapolis, Charlie McCarran. And this show is my way of getting perspectives from all sorts of composers and songwriters about how they make music. This is episode number 60, and you can find all 59 of the other ones at ComposerQuest.com or search for ComposerQuest on iTunes or Stitcher. In the last episode, I announced the Fortune Cookie Songwriting Quest. Make sure to check that out if you want to try this songwriting challenge and be featured on a Composer Quest album. In this episode, I talk with the multi-talented film composer, DJ, and opera singer, Brooke DeRosa. She shares some awesome and practical advice about writing for films and writing for vocalists. Brooke is also making a name for herself as an operatic rap singer. She sang on Ghostface Killa's most recent album, 12 Reasons to Die, and she got to perform on Jimmy Fallon with them. I posted that video at ComposerQuest.com slash Brooke if you're interested. Now, let's get to my talk with Brooke DeRosa. So, Brooke... You have your hands in a lot of things in the music industry, it seems like. Was there a certain point where you said, wow, I I am doing this for my living? Well, I mean, honestly, I, I'm probably not there yet. I kind of have to cobble together sort of a bunch of things. There's some things that I do that are more like a passion. There's some things that are music that just generate money. Like, I, I also DJ. But um, I, don't, I don't know. I'm not really there yet. So I don't, I don't know if I should really answer the whole question. Sure. When did you start doing film scoring? That I started actually fairly recently. I mean, I had always been that weird kid that like didn't know who Nirvana was at all. But I like listened to like, you know, Star Wars and I was just really strange. My mom was like very worried about me. But yeah, I, I kind of had no pop culture. I just listened to film scores and it occurred to me like, yeah, not not too long ago, I was like, you know, I know how to like write for instruments and how to write tunes and things. I would really like to get into this because it's films which I love and music which I love. And luckily, I was able to find somebody that would mentor me and kind of show me how to start a studio. And really helpful. His name is Neil Acre. He's amazing, amazing guy. I really enjoyed your cues you sent me for the hand of. Um, the Hand of Now? Yeah. That, yeah, that was a cool short film. There's some really good and freaky sounds <laughs> in there. <laughs> ah, thank you. a lot of pitch bending of strings and just weird stuff that you know we're lucky to have um, our computers and I always look at it as a plus and some people are like oh it's not all written by hand but you know it's kind of cool to be able to do stuff fairly efficiently mm -hmm. and you know by oneself do you work with live musicians then too for your film scores yeah it really depends on the budget of the film that kind of dictates going into a studio but oftentimes i kind of try and get a around all of that by 
even if I can't get like a full section of something, I'll I'll use electronics and have like one live player come in and do like maybe three or four takes and kind of layer them in there. You know, like if they're a, a violinist or, or they play brass, because it's just so expensive, especially in LA, to go into a studio. You really and you really have to have the budget for it. That's not always available, and you have to be a little inventive. It kind of sucks, but by the time it gets to the post-production, you know, the composing and everything, they've kind of blown through the entire budget. <laughs> so it's usually not a ton of money, and they need it very quickly. <laughs> That's been my experience. Are you from the L.A. area, or did you move there? Or? No, I moved here. I'm actually from New York. I like L.A. It's nice. It's warm. Yeah. It's where all the studios are, which is kind of convenient. Most people here are making movies, so just by virtue of living here you're around more of that kind of you know thing if that's what you're going for and you get to hang out with john williams and <laughs> i was enjoying your page of celebrity photos <laughs> that you've gotten pictures with yeah i've been pretty lucky to meet um yeah john williams like hans zimmer pretty much all the big guys i've met I still think that they're so surprised that people know who they are sometimes. <laughs> you know, they're, they're usually really g very gracious because, you know, they're not like Tom Cruise or whatever. Like, a lot of people wouldn't know what, you know, Howard Shore looks like, but I'd be like, oh my god! <laughs> they're like always so weirded out that you know who they are. And they're really nice people and everybody I've come to with questions has been really helpful and they've chatted a little bit even if it's just to let me go oh my god I love this score <laughs> whatever it is you know what kind of things did you ask those huge composers about John Williams I just told him that the end theme from Empire Strikes Back is what made me want to get into film scoring which he was really gracious about but I'm sure he hears all the time um, and I think I I did ask Hans Zimmer what the in the Dark Knight Rises the the kind of sound that happens when the Joker goes to the party is and I believe it's a cello run through distortion and maybe recorded backwards or so, it was something like that. Yeah, I was kind of wondering when you're composing for film, do you have any set methods of how you go about it? I personally. I try and write themes for things instead of having it be more like the a lot of scores today kind of are more almost like a sound design type of a deal. I try and go through and like pick out the characters that make a difference, the conflicts they maybe go through and, and kind of figure out what I want to be where and then I can kind of take those themes and I can you know distort them if they're getting into an argument or put something that's in a major key and a minor key vice versa. Or, you know, sometimes they work and sometimes they don't. Sometimes it doesn't need a theme. Sometimes it's just one character is just, his theme is more like underscore for the entire thing. But I try and watch the whole film and then break it apart. And I actually like to work chronologically if I can, because I find that kind of makes the sound like the arc generally build, which is usually what you want in the film. It's really hard for me to kind of work from the middle or from the end or anything. I write almost like the thematic song and then kind of, chop it up into pieces and put those pieces in different places that's just how i work more it's more like a like a classical composer would like if you're going to write like a sonata or something where there's just uh, an orchestra playing stuff that's more the world that i in particular have come from um and that's why i work that way yeah i had never done a feature length film score until a month or two ago and 
the film doesn't have that much music in it, and the director kind of didn't want that Lucky. much music. Lucky! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've never had a director but, say, don't put that much music in it. <laughs> well, the I almost had to fight to get some of the music in there, because he wanted it to be very true to real life. But the one thing I ran into is that I had this love theme, and I would end up reusing it throughout the film four or five times and it's like how do you develop that in a more interesting way and right. I tried to just vary the instrumentation a little bit vary the notes a little bit but it still felt like I was just coming back to the same thing have you run into that kind of thing yeah um another thing that can help is to really vary the you know the speed of it um, the instrumentation, like you said, but if you play something at halftime or something, if you just need it to be underscore, if you if you just take a, a theme you have and maybe you pull out the melody line completely and you just have the chordal kind of relations, that that's maybe something. Um, sometimes also you can just kind of write like, I mean, I know what you're saying about varying the melody, but almost like a, a derivative theme, like if you were going to orchestrate it further, like another instrument would play that part and then you just kind of have it be that but when everything else fails I just go for a a string pad in there and then I try and just work with that like either I just put it there so there's something there and then I either go I hate this completely and I pull it out or I go okay well this needs something else and I add to that and then I pull it out or I whatever but sometimes like just putting something in there helps I don't know why even if it's not anywhere near the final product so yeah but I vary a lot a lot of the time if none of those things you're mentioning like instrumentation work I will vary the speed and that seems to help for me I don't know yeah maybe we could talk about one of your short film scores like the seller oh that's the name of the cue yeah that's actually a minor version of a happy theme I had this girl was walking home from school and it was like this happy happy theme she goes into the cellar of the house and uh, it gets like a little bit creepy so basically I had like the violins like kind of making these dissonances by just like hanging over an extra eighth note or whatever and it's just some crazy but it's actually the same theme it's just made minor
as a vocalist, what would you say makes a piece of music fun for you to perform? Okay, well, I know there are singers who do not share this opinion. I personally like really beautiful melodic things. If you have a beautiful melody, I can pretty much forgive anything else. I don't really love crazy atonal stuff that is really hard to read and and all over the place. So yeah, I I think with a beautiful melody, you can pretty much forgive even writing all over the Passage region. Um, Please don't do that, anybody that's listening. It's really hard for us. (laughs) Uh, What is that? Region? So uh, a lot of times I've been working with especially recently composers either to do like vocals on a trailer or film score they have a really a pretty good idea about how to write but they don't know like all of the intricacies of performers obviously when we're singing we're going to different like regions in our voice like there's like a chest region there's like a head region and there are places in the middle where it's really hard for us to kind of get I mean, it still sounds nice, but it's it's like it's hard to get certain effects. Like some people will want you to belt through this or make this really weird noise or whatever it is. And I think some composers don't really know all the intricacies of where those regions are for each voice type. And they're different. They're different for a woman. They're different for a man. They're different for a mezzo and for a soprano. They're different for a tenor and a bass and a baritone. So, I, w- I mean, I would say if you if you have any doubts to show your singer and ask them if it's in a comfortable key, because usually I would think as a composer, if you're writing something like for voice and orchestra, you would want it transposed to where it's good for them. Maybe, you know, maybe the horns and the winds are going to be a little upset, but it, that might behoove you to find where it is good for your singer. Because sometimes certain words are really hard to pronounce, obviously, as we go very, very high. If, if you need to be very audible, you know, you might want to bump that particular note down an octave or something. So there's a lot of intricacies, I think, about writing for the voice. Yeah. I think personally I have a lot to learn about writing for trained singers, too, because I recently wrote an uh, opera aria, and as I was coming up with it, you know, I'm singing in falsetto. Quiet. Not really thinking that, oh, wow, this is going to be a powerful high note for this singer. Yeah, I wasn't thinking range-wise. Yeah, but I mean, you know, in the composer's defense, you really wouldn't, you know, if you you hadn't been a singer yourself. So, I mean, it's completely forgivable when everyone does it. I'm just saying that's something we always get and is like, ah... Yeah. Are there any other tips you have for writing for voice? I guess a lot of times also with the synthesized everything, you kind of forget to, the voice, you know, just like a clarinet, you have to breathe at some point. You don't have to mark the breaths for the singer, but making sure that there are places where where you can breathe is always a good thing. You know, make if you are a composer who doesn't particularly sing, if you just, you know, sing through it yourself, in whatever voice you have just to make sure the person can breathe. If you can breathe and you're not a a singer, I'm sure the singer will have ample chance to breathe. Uh, Especially like in trailers when they want that very long like boy choir, you know, vibrato line. It's just like, where do you breathe in here? (laughs) I'm (laughs) not a machine. (laughs) Yeah. Then they probably want to just like 
layer your voice over itself yeah. to create an infinite no an infinite something. loop yeah yeah basically <laughs> <laughs> have you sung for some video games did i see yeah i don't think that they ever went anywhere and i don't remember what one of them was called but yeah i've done <laughs> i've done pretty much like every kind of session vocal work you you can do i think i've done i've done some really strange things maybe we could talk a little bit about your experience working with Ghostface Killa, okay. too. Yeah. Which is interesting because you're combining classical opera with, like, really grungy rap. Yeah, completely. And... <laughs> it's not very expected. How did that come about? I actually met Adrian Young, who's the composer and producer on 12 Reasons to Die, which is the Ghostface album. I had seen a show of his, and I had, like, added him on Facebook, and this is like way back, like four or five years ago. And I had just put up on my page, you know, I was looking to do session work and I'm an opera singer. And I guess he saw it as soon as he added me and he called me that day. And um, we actually got together and I did a track on his album called Something About April. Then he was like, oh, we have this top secret thing. Can't say anything. Can't say anything. I was like, oh, what is it? And it's it was the, the Ghostface album. Now, how that worked, though, is I didn't actually record with Ghostface. Uh, everything is done in Adrian's studio because he actually records on analog tape. There's no doctoring of anything. There's nothing added. He did all the instrumentals and then we did vocals over it. There's a couple other singers and then I do the crazy opera stuff. It's like all over the album. And then um, they sent it to him and I was like, he's going to be like, who is this girl <laughs> on this thing ruining my record? <laughs> Adrian's like, no, no, it's going to be dope. It's going to be dope. They're going to love it. I'm like, I don't know. And so, yeah, then he came out here and we had a rehearsal and he walked in and I was like terrified because he had his like entourage and there are all these like huge, really scary looking gangster rappers, you know? And I'm just like, hi, Mr. Face, Mr. K <laughs> like, uh, <laughs> And so... They started the rehearsal, and I'm like, oh, and he's like, that is awesome. That is so awesome. He's like, I was wondering who that was, and it, it, was, it was, they were, like, so nice to me after that. Like, they were, like, he's such a nice guy. He's such a nice guy, and all the other rappers, they're all so nice, and they're, they're so friendly. It's really funny. I hope I don't destroy their street cred, but. Um. Oh. <laughs> well, I think it's interesting how APRA kind of back in the day was, like, almost like what rap is now like pretty dirty and yeah <laughs> and pretty like popular and no i completely agree it's really it's actually you know it's funny because when you look at hip-hop a lot of it is like pianos and strings i mean you know even like snoop dogg i mean they, they have it, a lot of it is really classical especially like new stuff nowadays like drake there's like a lot of very classical choral relations and they just happen to have you know 808s or whatever 909s in there and it so 808s and 909s, I've always heard those, and I'm wondering if our listeners know what that is. And it's a drum. Should we ask like, them? Electronic. <laughs> Should we ask, ask them? The listeners. Hi, listeners. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. Well, yeah, they're the electronic like, drum, drum drum machines. Kits yeah. That just got really popular as like the hip hop drum machines, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, they're pretty recognizable. Like basically all the hip hop from the '90s and stuff. I mean, that's all. They still use it all over the place. It's still today. It's you know. I like the wood block. That's my favorite. I think it needs to be used more. Not not a big fan of the foghorn. 
I challenge you to come up with a, a beat with a foghorn in it. I did. That one I sent you has a foghorn in it. I put it in to be funny. How did you get into DJing? There was this DJ, Dave Yoshitomi, he's actually a good friend of mine now, but I was like, would you teach me how to do this? Like, would you give me a lesson if I pay you money? And he's like, yeah, sure. So he taught me about like beat matching and everything, which, you know, because I have at this point in a pretty extensive music background, beat matching is not that difficult for me. And so, um, Dobby, stop it. Sorry, that's my dog. Uh, but yeah i think i took one lesson with him and then i went on craigslist and i bought two techniques turntables and then i went i just bought a bunch of vinyl records and a a mixer and i just sat there like trying to figure it out and it's really hard because before serato which is the program that most djs use today serato or tractor um you wouldn't know what the BPM like really was like so you'd have to sit I was sitting there with like a metronome trying to and to Blondie like their drummer I don't he's all over the place <laughs> he's all <laughs> over the place so I would be trying to like figure out what the BPM was so I could figure what other record I could play with it and I personally take into account like the key it's in because a lot of people will just mash them and one will be well, it'll be this really terrible like like a half step up or something <laughs> just like oh that's not good um has djing influenced your composing you know it has influenced my songwriting because now i know <laughs> this is so cheesy but I know that DJs are going to be playing basically a certain style of music at the peak hours of the night. And if I want to write something that is going to be more like a hit, it has to be basically that speed and that kind of a like a house thing. Or if it's hip hop, it's got to be like between these parameters. Because I used to write music and everything was like 108 and like 110 in terms of the beats per minute. And um, it's just funny because basically every number one, you know, pop single will be, you know, like whatever. So... Every year. What, what is a lot of well a lot of things is, around like I think blurred lines is was like one twenty five VPMs a lot of most most like housey type even like Lana Del Rey right now summertime sadness the remix everything is like one twenty eight everything is one twenty eight um, the hip hop stuff is really really slow you know one thing I use for composing when I just don't know what else to do is I look at maybe a song I like the chords of even if it's pop like recently there's this like Selena Gomez song and I did not just admit this. But um, I really <laughs> like the chords. I know she didn't write it, but I like the chords. And I was like, those are interesting chords. And I'll just like dissect them and like see if there's another way I like to put them together. So, you know, sometimes it helps for composing if I just need to step away from it for a minute, you know? I will probably never do like a Michael Bay movie. I'll probably never do something where I have to sound like Hans Zimmer or a trailer. I like all of that and I really like that sound. It's just very hard for me to sound like that. <laughs> <laughs> so, but you know, I mean, uh, don't want to sound like everybody else anyway.
big thanks to Brooke DeRosa for coming on Composer Quest and sharing all this good advice. You can check out her music at brookderosa.com. Stay updated on Composer Quest stuff by finding Composer Quest on Facebook or Twitter. And you can always email me, charlie at composerquest.com, if you want to say hi. Now, fasten your seatbelts, because you're in for another... I'm always curious about how the very first seed of a song turns into a full-blown production. So I thought I would share an electronic track of mine from its very first note, which happened to be this. I wanted to try using a single guitar strum as a sample that I could play using my MIDI keyboard. Turns out this is ridiculously easy in Ableton Live, using a MIDI instrument called Simpler. You just drop in the audio clip, and it's ready to go. Most audio workstations have some way of doing this kind of sampling. So anyways, once I dropped in my guitar strum, I was ready to play some MIDI notes. The cool thing about using MIDI is that a random sequence of notes, like the one I just played you, can be tweaked so easily. For example, you can add an arpeggio effect time to the beat, so the random notes become slightly less random. I was starting to like that random rhythmic stuff that was happening, so to make it sound a little less like crappy computer beeps, I added chorus, reverb, and most importantly, a delay effect to give it some life. Next, I added a Morse code-like piano sound to accent some of the beats. Again, played pretty randomly. Here's what these two instruments sound like together. Did you hear those two little staccato stabs? Those were my way of signaling the end of the loop so it's not like you're floating in random land forever. What I did was make the attack harsher on both of these instruments. I like these two mellow synth lines, but I kind of thought, well, why not make it a dance beat? Because everybody's doing it. And why not some wobbly bass? Now, I'll play you the full track, which will probably end up on the upcoming video game called Zone Out, spelled X-O-N-A-U-T. This game has an 8-bit feel, so I wrote the melody with that nostalgic sound in mind. I also used Ableton Live's bit reduction effect, called Redux, on just about every other track to make it more video gamey. So here's the track in progress, tentatively titled Zone Out B. (laughs) 